everybody! Welcome to the Good Evening Kitties podcast, a Tales from the Crypt review. My name is Melissa, your ghostess with the mostest, and today's episode is Season 7, Episode 3, A Slight Case of Murder. Ooh, a slight case. In Season 7, we are in the UK, and because of that, I am trying to drink some tea with uh, as many episodes as I can, so today... I decided to do an Irish breakfast, which I know kind of negates the, uh, it's not in the UK, it's not English breakfast like I had in season 7 episode 1, but it was in my sampler pack and I wanted to try it. So I have an Irish breakfast here, which I did look up what the difference is, and according to the teacupoflife.com, the difference between English and Irish breakfast is that uh, Irish breakfast can consist of the same black teas as English breakfast, but the main difference is that it usually has more Assam tea leaves in the blend than other black teas. So these Assam tea leaves give it more of a reddish hue and a rich multi-flavor profile, which we will find out. It definitely has seemed darker than the English breakfast. I'm making it in a similar fashion like I did with the English breakfast. I'm doing like a little splash of milk or whatever and then some sugar. It's a little lighter but it looks like it would have took more cream or milk to make it even lighter because it definitely brewed up darker. So I'm going to go ahead and try, I don't know if I'd say malty aftertaste. It's a little different than what I remember the English breakfast being. I think I might kind of like the aftertaste of the Irish a little better. The English breakfast had kind of a different type of aftertaste that wasn't really sitting with me. So, I mean, I think I may like this one a little better. Yeah, it's not it's not too bad. I think I like it a little better, but I did have a little less milk in here, so maybe that was what I didn't care for. I have it in like a uh, thick diner mug. So yeah, that was the tea for the episode. So let's get back to season seven, episode three, A Slight Case of Murder. As always, John Kassir does the voice of the Crypt Keeper and Danny Elfman does the theme song. This episode was directed by Brian Helgenland, who also directed the movie A Knight's Tale. The screenplay was also by Brian Helgenland. This episode stars Francesca Anis from movies like Dune from 1984, Christopher Casanova, or Casanova uh, from movies like A Knight's Tale, which Brian Helgenland directed, and TV's Judge John Deed, Elizabeth Spriggs from movies like Sense and Sensibility, and Patrick Barlow from TV's Clatterford. Could also probably be Clatterford. So that's who's in it. It's a small cast. There's only four people. The original air date for A Slight Case of Murder was May 3rd, 1996. I'm going to go ahead here and read the information on the back of the box. A best-selling mystery author may have the talent, but it's her snoopy neighbor who has a plot. See, I kind of don't like that because, again, they're kind of letting on the ending a little bit because it's definitely about this nosy neighbor. It's got some fun twists and turns, so I don't think this episode's that bad. So this episode opens up with the Crypt Keeper, of course. He is a wizard. He's in like a blue and blackish type cloak and a blue and blackish type long wizard hat that has like some stars on it or something. And he's got a long wizard goatee. He's palm reading. He's got like a star sign chart. It's a He's talking to a human. So I think it's supposed to be you. And then this human like puts out their hand and you can see the hand and he's reading all the star signs and making puns and having fun. And, and that's how he's bringing in the episode. He makes a cute little wizard. So this episode opens with kind of a long intro. They take their time coming up to this big mansion house. I wouldn't say it's like a mansion, but it's, well, no, it is. <laughs> It's pretty big. It's like an estate type house. It's big. It's got a big wooden door. It's locked by a bunch of those really cool like skeleton keys and things like that. Or the key they show later was pretty cool. And they're like coming up on it as they're doing the opening credits. And it's this big house and you can hear someone typing and it zooms in through the front window. 
and it's coming across Sharon Bannister. She is an author who does mystery books, uh, mostly mystery writing, I think, and she's working. She's at this desk. She has typewriter. She's typing out her manuscript, finishing a page and like putting it on top of a giant stack of pages. All that makes me nervous. Should you smudge something? I mean, I guess, you know, you send it off to an editor, but it's like, say a big wind blows you I mean I hope you number all your pages it just I don't, it makes me nervous if you forget something or you got to go back I mean I know it was done a lot a long time ago and still today I'm sure but I made too many mistakes I think of course I guess that's what you have white out for and then they zoom in on someone coming in through her front door and it's like a big wooden door with a metal handle it's neat like I like the room she's in she's got these big thick red curtains and big plushy chairs it's very ornate a lot of wood trim and things like that so she's hearing someone come in and she's getting worried because she, she doesn't know who it is. No one's talking and they're just coming in. So she's reaching down to grab the fire poker yeah, next to the fireplace because it's on. And in comes Mrs. Trask. And Mrs. Trask is played by Elizabeth Spriggs. And she's kind of this grandmotherly larger woman. I mean, not super large or anything, but she's got glasses and like a mess of curly hair on top of her head. And she's her next door neighbor. And Mrs. Trask is very nosy. So she comes over and she's got a cup, a measuring cup, and she's like, oh, can I borrow a cup of sugar? You know how they do it in movies and shows. It stood out to me and it's probably nothing, not anything, but I noticed she had a liquid measuring cup for it, which normally for a cup of sugar, you want to use a, a solid measuring cup where you go to the top and then you like kind of skim off the top to make a packed sugar, especially if you're doing brown sugar, um, which again, it probably doesn't matter. I've, I think I've used both, but like it just seemed odd to me. And then I also was like, oh, I wonder what the difference is with the UK. And so I looked it up and for UK, actually, a cup of sugar is 250 milliliters but for us it's 240 milliliters which is kind of weird um which I guess has to do with metrics and things like that but she comes over and she wants a cup of sugar she's like hey uh Miss Trask is like hey didn't want to disturb you I know you're working hard can I have some sugar and so she's like yes yes finally and she does a lot of uh Mrs. Bannister uh, Sharon does a lot of these fun quips under her breath when she's talking to Mrs. Trask because she's just frustrated and I think she's just finished her book or she's almost finished it's not like she's deep in it but she's just wanting to be left alone. So they, they go into the kitchen. Uh, Mrs. Trask is like, hey, did you take a look at my manuscript? Because that happens sometimes with people who are writers or in movies, like people want you to look at their scripts. And she's like, yeah, totally, I did. And she has this um, cardboard box full of like little note cards. And I guess that's what Mrs. Trask wrote her book on was just a series of note cards, like ideas and stuff. And I think she was just wanting like an idea of where she's going with her plot and everything like that. And I don't even think Sharon really looked it over. Or if she did, she did for a second and was like, this is ridiculous. And she just makes some like remarks about it not being that great, but like in a, kind of in a nicer way, but she doesn't want anything to do with it. She's busy. So she gives the note cards back to Mrs. Trask and the cup of sugar and she's like okay bye <laughs> and as Mrs. Trask is leaving she's like hey how's your husband of yours is he still away and she's like uh-huh she just doesn't answer she just shuts the door and she comes back into her room I mean there's a fire going but in this room where she's typing with like the big chairs and the books and the fire I'm assuming it's cold because she's unfortunately wearing a white turtleneck with a like a tan cardigan and the turtleneck is uh, like her nips are showing. I pointed out in other episodes before, might as well point it out for this one. Obviously it was colder in this room than they intended it to be. It's not like super noticeable, but it is noticeable a little in the beginning here. Um, so she's drinking her tea and she starts hearing someone else like running around outside or noises. And so she goes back outside of the house and there's no one there. And so she goes back in and calls the police. 
The police are like, hey, it's going to be at least like half an hour before we get there. Pretty sure she tells them not to come, unless everything here happens in a half hour, which I find very unlikely because they don't even show the cops showing up. So I'm going to say she, she tells them not to. She doesn't literally say it, but I think it's like implied. So now she's kind of paranoid. She's shutting the drapes and she gets a phone call. And so she thinks it's the sergeant calling back. And then instead, it's not. It's her husband. Her husband, Larry, played by Christopher Casanova. I think there's somebody here. Sharon. Coming in. They're coming in. Honey. Honey. Are you all right? <gasps> you bastard. He used to call me Biscuit. So she thought he was calling from wherever he was at. And then he comes in and she's relieved. And he's like, oh, I see that you're relieved. And the reason he's being like this towards her is they're in the middle of a possible like divorce. They're separated. So she's the famous writer. She's going to keep a lot of the money probably. She has better lawyers and they're getting a divorce. The character of Larry, like I'm not, I don't really care for the way he he works his tongue too much when he talks because I think he's trying to be like smarmy or like overacting or campy or something. So she takes the poker and she's like, you need to get out of my house. And he's like, what? I came over to say hello. And he's like, by the way, I never cheated on you, unlike you or whatever. And she's like, what are you talking about? It's just like this implication that someone wasn't faithful, but he thinks she was. And I think she thinks he was. But then it's mostly just like a record. What is that? Irreconcilable differences or whatever. It just seems like they do not like each other anymore. There's also a bit of a foreshadowing here um, before this where she tends to misplace her keys a lot. She has keys on like this keychain that if you clap, you can find it. So she loses her keys at one point and has to clap, you know, like, and then it's like, boop, boop. And so she finds her keys. So that's something to keep in mind too. And so she's like, how did you get here? I don't see your car. And he's like, oh, I took the train in and then I walked. And she's like, walked? It was like 20 miles. And he's like, yeah, well, can I stay here and warm up by the fire? They keep arguing and basically he is there to kill her because he knows he's going to get screwed on the money. And so if she's dead, he'll get more of it as well as she's pretty much finished her book and he can publish that posthumously and get money from that. So they get in a little bit of a fight. I get the feeling this separation's been harder on me than you. Pity. Probably won't like the divorce any better. I didn't hear your car pull up. Oh, I didn't bring the car, Bumpkin. I took the train to Chumley, hiked the rest of the way. Hiked? Yeah. <laughs> it's 20 miles. 21, actually. I wanted to surprise you. You know how the local busybodies are. Uh, down Mrs. Trask. No secrets with her, you know. Surprise, sweetie. This is a very sick joke. The only sick joke I'm aware of is our marriage. But then again, I'm biased. I may have been dishonest with you, but I never cheated on you. And he pushes her down onto the couch, points the gun at her, and is like, give me your keys to the car, because I'm going to drive away and then like abandon the car, and it'll look like I've never been here because I didn't drive here, the neighbor didn't see it, she'll be none the wiser because he knows she's nosy. And then when he kind of looks away to the right, she punches at his hand and grabs the gun that he drops, and then she goes to shoot it, or like point it at him, she goes to point it at him, and she forgets to take the safety off the trigger or whatever. So like she goes to shoot it, but it doesn't shoot. And then so he takes, I think the fireplace poker and smacks her along the face and knocks her out. So he thinks he killed her. And he goes to get ready to pick her up to get rid of the body when there's a knock at the door. 
And of course it's Mrs. Trask because she cannot stay away. Part of me is like, okay, if the woman is working and like she's got stuff kind of locked up, maybe call. There's a phone. You could call. And so she can't get in the house. She's knocking. No one's answering the door. And Mrs. Trask is like, oh, don't worry, sweetie. I know where the key is. And so she takes the cool like skeleton key and opens the door and comes in. And so this part's kind of funny. Larry didn't know what to do with Sharon's body. So what he does is he props her up on the desk where she looks like she's working in front of her typewriter. And he takes a ruler, sticks it to the end of the typewriter and puts the other end on her head. So she's balanced on the typewriter. It looks like she's working. She's unconscious. She's just basically being balanced by this ruler and Larry's hiding behind the side of the door. And then Mrs. Trask walks in and tries to talk to her. She's telling her like a riddle to give her a hint on what she wants because she's cooking, she's baking, she wants some eggs. So now she's back for eggs because Mrs. Trask don't go shopping before she cooks. I don't know. She's just assuming, I guess, that Sharon has eggs as well. It's all right, Sharon. I know where the spare key is kept. Sharon, I've got a little riddle for you. A box with no hinges, key or lid, but golden treasure inside it is hid. Do you give up? It's an egg, of course. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. She's a million miles away. I, I'm sorry to disturb you, Sharon. It, it's all right. I know where the eggs are kept. She leaves and Larry is like, whew. And so he goes down into the basement and in a lot of the Tales from the Crypt episodes, the basement is just like a dirt floor. He goes down there and he's digging a hole in this dirt floor and he's gonna bury her because he thinks she's dead. Back over in Mrs. Trask's house, you find out she has a son. His name is Joey. And I would say he's like in his late 20s. He looks like he just doesn't care about anything. <laughs> like he's just kind of like, ugh, whatever, you know, mom. They shoot up to his room and he's got on the wall all the covers of Sharon Bannister's book. And her voice is in his head reading this letter he has. Dear Cupcake, I know I've told you in my letters not to speak to me for fear that my husband would find out. But the time is coming soon when this wall of silence will be destroyed. Right. Joey! What? Joey! Oh, bloody hell! So he's been getting letters from her about how they should be together, how much she cares about him, but don't contact her back because her husband will find out and they have to wait until after the divorce. She calls him Cupcake. And so he thinks they're like in a secret relationship. And then he hears his mom and he's like, God, what, mom, what? Uh. <laughs> and she's like, well, I finished these gingerbread cookies. How about you take them over to Sharon? She's been a bit down. You know, maybe you could take these cookies over and cheer her up or whatever. And I think they look like little gingerbread men. I think it's like, you know, like little gingerbread cookies. Because now, you know, she's done with her baking. At least she's paying it forward a bit, I suppose. Still being a bit nosy. But at least she's like, well, I borrowed the eggs and the sugar. I can at least share some of the cookies. So she gives the cookies to her son. And her son dashes over there. And in the meantime, uh, Larry's back over there burying Sharon. And there's this part where he goes to put, he has it like all buried up around her face. And she's laying there. And then he takes like this little, um, like a little white sheet thing and covers up her face before he buries her. Which I thought was kind of weird, but I think they did it because of the shot. And I'll get to that in a second. So they, he puts the cloth over her face. I mean, maybe he used that cloth to wipe off the weapons or something. And Joey shows up at the house and he looks like a little, like a goth priest. This black shirt up with the collar. Maybe he's more like in his 30s. 
late 30s. So he gets to the house and he's looking for Sharon and he can't find her. And again, he just walks right in. No one was answering, so he just walks in. He's got this little bowl of cookies and he's bored, so he's going to eat some of the cookies. So he's looking around the house, eating the cookies. Larry's downstairs finishing up burying Sharon. He hears Larry come up the stairs and hides around the side of the cupboard or on the table and he's eating the cookies. And Larry leaves to go outside. He's going to take the car and leave. Joey runs downstairs and he starts un unburying Sharon. And he sees her and he's like, oh my gosh, you know, my love or whatever. And the reason I think they put the cloth here is because he gets some of the dirt off and then he goes to pull the cloth and it just pulls all the dirt back and her face is fine. The actress doesn't have to worry about choking on dirt. They don't have to worry about like makeup or anything later. So, I mean, I can see why they did that. I'm pretty sure that's why. So he pulls it back and he's like, oh no, you know, you're dead. That's crazy. Meanwhile, in her car in the front of the house is Larry and he's looking for the keys. He doesn't know where they are. He assumes, I guess, that she just left them in here because he couldn't find them anywhere in the house. He realizes they're on her. I didn't check her before I buried her. She still has them. And then so Joey gets back home. His mom's sitting there, Mrs. Trask, and she's reading over her note cards for her plot. And he runs in and he's like, I gotta go, mom, shut up. <laughs> and he grabs a gun and she's like, that's nice, sweetie. And then she's just reading over her plot and like working on her manuscript or whatever with her note cards. And when Larry gets back in, he goes downstairs and now he sees that the hole has been dug up, but Sharon is missing. And then he gets a phone call from a phone in the basement, which is weird. <laughs> but he gets a phone call and it's Sharon and she's like, hey. Hello? Hi, lover. You didn't hit me hard enough. You always were romantic. Sharon, where are you? By the way, thanks for leaving the gun up here. <laughs> I think I just figured how to get the safety off. <laughs> Bye, biscuit. You didn't hit me hard enough, and I found the gun. How you like that? Come upstairs. And he's like, ah, crap. <laughs> and so he comes upstairs. There's like this big red curtain, and they're like in this um, dining hall, dining room parlor thing. And she's hiding behind a armored knight. Like, it's just so, like, posh and medieval in this place. And he can't see her because it's dark. So he knows she's got the clapper thing on her on her keys. And so he's like, and then it goes off and she's like, crap. So she comes out from behind the suit of armor. He had like old rusty hedge clippers and he broke them in half. So he only had the one and he flings it and it hits her right in the chest. Really good. Like it's, I mean, it's kind of gross. All of a sudden he gets shot from behind and that's Joey. So Joey is behind him with the gun that he took from his mom's house. You got Sharon. She's got a blade in her chest holding the gun. Then you've got Larry who just got shot in the back and he falls down to the ground. And then you got Joey behind him, like, I'm going to save you. And then because she got shot, her hand goes off and shoots Joey. So now he's shot too. So he falls to the ground and then she falls to the ground. So they're all on the ground. And then it shoots back over to Mrs. Trask and she's reading her notes and she's like, oh, I've got it. And you're just like, okay. <laughs> then um, it shoots back over, right? They're all laying there. Apparently, Larry got some postcard or found out about a postcard or something that he thinks Sharon sent Joey. And Joey's like, hey, sweetie, your cupcake's gonna save you. And Larry's like, you call him cupcake? And she's like, what is going on? And so Larry's like, you've been having an affair with Joey? And she's like, no, I haven't. You're alive, thank God. Cupcake's gonna save you. Cupcake? 
You call him Cupcake. <coughs> I have the slightest idea what he's talking about. <coughs> oh, give it up, you lying card. Read the goddamn postcard he sent you. Oh, what postcard? I never sent you a postcard. You told me never to contact Joe. Oh, what the hell are you talking about? She's like, I would never do that. And then she has this great line where she's like, I wouldn't sleep with that moron if he had the last erection in the universe. You bitch. And so shortly after Joey's like, I was going to help you, his stomach starts hurting. He feels like his stomach's on fire and then he just dies. I mean, he already was shot. Larry has grabbed the gun from Joey. So now they're both laying on the ground with guns. And so Sharon shoots Larry and he's laying there with the gun to his right and they show it like hitting the ground. He's holding onto his gun and she's on her stomach because she's pulled out the blade. So now Larry and Joey are dead. And then in comes in Mrs. Trask and Sharon's like, call an ambulance. And she's like, mm, that's not really part of the plan. Call an ambulance. Make the husband think the wife is cheating. Manipulate the boy to fall in love with the wife. Poison the gingerbread so the police will think the boy has committed suicide. It doesn't say anything on here about calling for an ambulance. You... You did this. Of course, nothing quite went the way I wanted it to. I was really very surprised. But you were so right, Sharon, in matters of murder. You never know the ending until you get there. And so what you find out is this has been kind of a, a ploy by Mrs. Trask. She was sending the letters to her son to get him to fall in love with Sharon. I mean, they were still, I think, going to get a divorce anyway, but setting up, I guess, the cheating and letting the husband know so then maybe he'd want to kill her. I don't think it, she says it didn't quite go the way she wanted, but she liked it. And there's also, she does like a little bit of a foreshadowing earlier too about part of her plot and the way it, it ends with a gun going off and things like that. In my next story, the man dies with a gun in his hand. And as rigor mortis sets in, his finger tightens on the trigger. Bang! Makes them pull the trigger and shoot the other person. So there's a lot of like small little callbacks that come back later, um, which I kind of like in things like this. Sharon's like, oh my gosh, what? You're crazy. And she's like, well, you know, you weren't really nice to me. I guess it's about my manuscript. And she's like, I'm not going to call the police. And I'm going to use your book to sell as my own because she finished the manuscript. And I feel like if Sharon would have read these note cards a little better, maybe she could have seen the similarities between her own life. But she didn't know about Joey. I don't know if she would have really prevented it. Sharon goes to shoot Mrs. Trask with the gun. It's empty. Mrs. Trask is like, yeah, it's empty. I can tell. I can see down the barrel or whatever. You should do your research. And so now she's crawling over to get Larry's gun that's pointed at her. And as she does, Mrs. Trask steps on his wrist and his hand goes up. And I guess it's not really rigor mortis, but it's like she's hitting a nerve or whatever, I guess. And so his hand goes up and the trigger goes off and shoots her. Shoots Sharon. Right in the face, like right in the cheek. Mrs. Trask is like, yeah, I'm going to call my story uh, Death by Love Triangle or something, which I didn't think was that good of a title, but okay. Grabs a manuscript and leaves the house and she's like, yay, and she's all excited. And she's just walking away all happy and that's the end of the episode. So this was all for a manuscript and I guess some revenge and I don't know, but she was such a nosy neighbor. So I don't know. 
But yeah, I kind of like the twists and turns. It's not that surprising that it was Mrs. Trask in a way because there's only four people in the show, but that's the end. It cuts back to the Crypt Keeper. He's looking through a crystal ball now. <laughs> Crypt Keeper, you're so punny. And the best Crypt Keeper pun is... It looks like Neptune has just moved from Virgul to late Capricorn, which would mean you should avoid any serious romantic entranglements for a while. At least until the end of the month, when Mercury turns retrograde. Hmm. Something about your horoscope isn't making sense. Let me see your hand. Yes. Interesting. I'm not much at bleeding palms, but your future seems rather cloudy. Yeah, talking about those star signs and bleeding palms, just like reading palms, get it? Oh, Crypt Keeper. So yeah, that's the end of the episode. There is no IMDb trivia for this episode. Season 7, Episode 3, A Slight Case of Murder. The next episode is Season 7, Episode 4, Escape. I also have a five-star review to read that I received not too long ago. This is from V. A great listen for the boils and ghouls out there. I absolutely love this podcast. I happened upon by chance through mutual friends, and am so I am so glad I did. Melissa does an amazing job, and I never falter staying glued to her content. Growing up with the big bone daddy, I have total respect for how she breaks down every episode from Tales from the Crypt. This show was a huge part of growing up for me. Being interested in all things spooky is my life. Great job, five stars. Thank you so much for that review. I really enjoyed how you how you wrote it, like calling out the, the bone daddy and boils and ghouls. It was a great review, and I really appreciate it. I also wanted to give V a little bit of a plug. She has a podcast herself called Life Paranormal with V. Thank you for the review. So yeah, thank you all so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Gek Podcast or at G-E-K Podcast. You can also follow the Good Evening Kitties podcast on Facebook. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook or I believe Good Pods as well. And I can, I can read it. I will read it <laughs> on the podcast. And you can follow Gus the Podcat at a sweet cat named Gus on Instagram. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at goodeveningpod at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Hey guys, this is Vanessa, and my podcast is Life Paranormal with me. Listen as I serve you all things spirit, paranormal, and unexplained. Join me every other Saturday as my guest hosts and I recount our own experiences that will perplex and utterly terrify you. Life Paranormal with me is available on all major platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Join the Lifer fam by following me on Twitter at Paranormal. Follow, like, subscribe, and hit that notification button so you can always catch a ride on this spooky vibe. <laughs>